electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. Stocks with minuscule gains, but the economy is crushing it. Inflation is coming down. However, one of our guests still sees warning signs on the horizon. He will identify what they are and one equity group he sees positioned for gains despite that. Plus $150 million, that's the hit to Alaska Airlines' bottom line from those 737 MAX groundings. CEO Ben Minicucci joins us live to talk cost, safety, and concerns there as the relationship uh, with Boeing between the airline uh, is in a struggling place. You don't want to miss that. And chips, cards, and clothing. We have the trade into the print on three more names getting ready to report. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu with the numbers. Hi, Dom. All right, Ty. Green across the screen for the major indices, but we're trending towards the lower end of the trading range so far today. We're up fractionally. Just about flat on the session for the Dow Industrials, up about 28 points, 37,834. The S&P 500, 48.81 the last trade. They're up about one quarter of 1%, up 12 points. At the highs of the session, we were up 30 points and up roughly 6 to 8 points at the low. So, again, keeping an eye on that trading range, generally positive, but towards the lower end of things right now. The Nasdaq Composite, similar percentage gain, one quarter of 1% higher, 35 points. That's 15,517 for the last trade on the Nasdaq Composite. One place that is decidedly not in the green is when it comes to health insurance right now. Earlier this morning, health insurer Humana came out and gave a a decent earnings report. The comparability, maybe a surprise loss. Revenues were better than expected, but its forecast for full year profits came in well short of analyst expectations for the full year. They see rising medical costs carrying through from 2023 into 2024. That's weighing on a lot of the other insurers. United Health is down 6.5%. Elevance, Cigna, Molina Healthcare, some of those people with operations in Medicare taking a real hit here. So we'll watch that trend and see if that continues today. And then the place to watch for on the stock side of things, keep an eye on what's happening with Tesla shares. Yes, the report was after yesterday's closing bell, but the reverberations are being felt right now. The Nasdaq holding on to gains, but still Tesla down about 12.5%. They'd seize notably slower growth for vehicle uh, deliveries coming up in this coming year. So a miss on earnings, a miss on profits. The Tesla story is still very much a hot one for a lot of investors out there, Ty. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Tom, thanks very much. This morning's better than expected data, helping to push stocks higher. And we've got team coverage looking at every angle on the economy. Our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, with the latest stats and Washington correspondent Megan Casella with the White House's strategy to sell voters on the economy. Steve, we begin with you. Take it away. Hey, thanks, Tyler. Yeah, the U.S. economy continues to outperform or, as Tyler said, crush it on two notable fronts, growth and inflation. And markets and the Fed now have to navigate policy and where it's headed with growth remaining strong, 
but inflation continuing to fall. Here's the numbers that everybody's talking about. GDP surprising to the upside 3.3% on the quarter, down from the prior quarter, but above expectations. And the deflator is all the talk of the town here, half of what it was in the prior quarter. Durable's ex-transportation, the headline was negative because of Boeing, but take out transportation, and it was still strong. And here's prior home, here's a new home sales coming back up 8% on those lower mortgage rates. Looking at GDP year over year, what you see is that growth in 2023 actually accelerated from 2022, a far cry from that recession so many had predicted. And all of that while inflation declined from nearly 8% in 2022 to under 2% now on a quarterly basis. Despite declining inflation, the market has digested recent strong economic growth as a sign the Fed won't be as quick, perhaps, to as previously thought to cut rates. The March probability is trading below 50% now. There is more confidence, however, around the May meeting for a cut and for up to 140 basis points of cuts this year in total. The difficulty is that the Fed could look at the economy's performance on both growth and inflation and decide, hey, policies maybe not that far from where it needs to be, meaning it would be in no particular hurry to cut rates and do so only marginally. Tyler, tomorrow's PCE inflation report for December expected to show more declines as the year ended, and that's going to be another key data point in this debate. You know, Steve, what stands out to me is what you just said, and that is the idea that that where the data are right now would suggest that the Fed may have gotten it sort of well fine tuned and doesn't need to go a point and a half or a point and a quarter over the course of the year in terms of rate cuts. I think that's the way it might be looking at it. Now, I do think the Fed believes it is too restrictive on policy right now. The question is how much too restrictive, I guess, is the best way to put it. And so what may happen here is that the Fed, I think they could go at half the pace the market expects this year, but only real economic weakness would cause it to match where the market is priced. All right, Steve Leisman, thanks very much. Uh, So there are stats supporting a strong economy, but is it a winning strategy for the White House to get the president reelected? You could say they're yelling it from the rooftops. Washington correspondent Megan Casella has more. Megan, uh, Secretary Yellen chiming in here. They're certainly trying to yell it from the rooftops. Tyler, Yellen's hitting the road today as part of a renewed effort to sell the administration's economic message. In a speech before the Economic Club in Chicago this afternoon, she'll make the case that the Biden team's investments in infrastructure, energy, manufacturing, and elsewhere are the reason why we're seeing that surprisingly strong economic growth. Now, Treasury officials really felt vindicated this morning by these growth numbers. An official told me earlier today they feel the data supports the approach they've taken on the economy and that it suggests they were right to be optimistic at a time when most forecasters saw a recession coming. The speech today marks the start of a revamped economic pitch for Yellen, and she'll embark on what her team says will be a stepped-up travel schedule for 2024 to really drive that message home. It's really a concerted effort to change the the narrative here, and it's a nod to the fact that there's still a lot of economic pessimism around the country. Part of her focus, too, will be on trying to draw a sharper contrast with the Trump administration's record than we've seen them make in the past. And she'll say, for example, that while fixing the country's infrastructure, quote, was a punchline in the Trump era, Biden officials have actually delivered. Tyler? So I I really agree with what you just said there. There still seems to be an overhang of pessimism on the president's stewardship of the economy and on the state of the economy. Why do you think that is? You're absolutely right. And it's a really big challenge for this administration going into November. 
We don't know exactly why. Economists have a number of explanations here. One is just that the nature of inflation is that while price growth, prices might be growing at a slower rate, they're still much higher than they were before. So it doesn't feel like progress to a lot of people. A lot of the biggest categories on most people's budgets haven't slowed as much as inflation overall, housing being the main one here. And it just takes time too. You know, the Biden officials are really optimistic that the wind is finally at their backs on this, that the trends are moving in the right direction. But there's a long time between now yeah. and November. A lot could change and they've got to yeah, make I that case. I agree with you. Perception just seems not to have caught up with, with what we see as the economic reality right now. And the fact of the matter is prices are a lot higher than they were a couple of years ago, even though the rate of price gains has abated quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Megan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's go uh, check in with Rick Santelli. Seven-year notes up for auction. He's tracking the action at CME. Yes, Tyler. As you look at an intraday of sevens and watch yields drop, you can pretty much piece together that investors actually aren't too disappointed by the seven-year. $41 billion, completing $162 billion in a Three stages of Treasury coupon supply. What's noteworthy here is 41 billion sevens that we did today. Well, their high watermark throughout 2021 was 62 billion. This is the only maturity that we've auctioned where the Treasury has issued significantly more than we're issuing this go around. And that might be one of the reasons why the market likes it. The yield 4.109. Where was the when issued market? 4.106, which means it tailed, not a good thing, by half a basis point. Not big, but still, higher yield at the auction means a lower price that the government sold the securities for. If we go through all the metrics, they're all pretty close to 10 auction average, some a little bit better. But one that was a little bit worse was direct bidders. Dealers taking almost spot on, 13.9, 14% 10 auction average. So as yields move down a bit and we complete supply, it's now in the rear view mirror. But it certainly isn't going to leave investors' minds that we had a couple of shaky auctions, especially yesterday's five-year. Tyler, back to you. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. Our next guest says the Fed won't cut rates until June because of the strong economy. But once rates start coming down, REITs are among the places to be. Joining us now, Mark Avalone, president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, good to have you with us. Uh, you see the Fed not moving until uh, the middle of the year. I think that sort of expresses perhaps this fluid consensus about when the rate cuts might begin. Well, sure. And when you have unemployment sub 4%, you still have wage growth around 4%. And you have just a strong economy. This GDP number is no, unless it's a mistake that's going to be reevaluated and, and adjusted. This is not an economy that lends itself to an, a more accommodative Fed. Sure, the, the current rate at five and three eighths is well above inflation and will come down. But I don't see how the Fed rushes to that risks reigniting inflation when wage growth is well above, two times above their target rate of inflation. So that's why we think investors should delay their optimism for rate cuts till the summer. All right. And when those rates happen or in, t in anticipation of them, you think REITs would be a, a, a target of opportunity. Uh, REITs in warehouse infrastructure, cell towers, apartments, really the whole panoply of REITs. The whole panoply, that's a great word other than office. And that's what we think mm. the stigma, the stain has been for a lot of investors. They think that REITs de facto have to have office, and that is not true. 
Uh, host hotels in the luxury resort areas. It has has no office exposure. Apartment REITs like Avalon, um, no no relation have have no office exposure. The healthcare REITs have no exposure and cell towers, as you mentioned. So investors, look, our favorite sector is technology, but you can't just, we're asset allocators, so we can't have everything in tech. So when we look on the value side, this is where we see strong cash flows, diversification, an opportunity for investors to receive current cash while interest rates come down and those dividend yields will hopefully look very attractive. Let's talk about technology because you have an interesting take on it that is intuitively very appealing to me. I, I like um, I like funds. I think you get instant diversification. I like the uh, transaction costs with most funds or the expense rates on most funds. You have two that you're suggesting that are so-called equal weight technology funds, J.P. Morgan Technology Leaders Strategy and First Trust NASDAQ 100 Tech Sector. Explain to me why the equal weight uh, approach makes sense to you right now. Well, exactly. And when we look at the, if we look at a traditional tech ETF like the XLK, I don't think many investors would would realize that 42% of their exposure is Apple and Microsoft. It's the same for the Fidelity and Vanguard information technology ETFs. And since those two names are such a big part of the triple Qs, such a big part of the SBY, Apple's in Berkshire Hathaway. You can't not own Apple, it seems. So then to own what you think is a diversified tech ETF and just layer more on, we feel adds risk to the typical investor. The two ETFs that you mentioned, they have about 42 names. They're roughly equal weight. They're structured a little differently. And we get to leverage the the research departments of a great entity like JPM, get technology-enabled companies as well as technology companies, and really benefit from a broad base of companies that are either in the tech space or benefiting from it. And the multiples in those funds are even less than what you pay for the Magnificent Seven, which after Tesla's demise is really the Magnificent Six. So we're getting less expensive tech, broadly diversified. And we think that's a better way to play the tech game than the Magnificent Six. So very quickly, do either of these funds have any of those Magnificent Seven holdings in them? Albeit at a small, they do, percentage. but it's an equal weight approach, and that's—it's really hard to escape it. it, unless I'm going to find one that says without the Mag Seven. But the but the beautiful thing is there's 42 names. They're all about two to three percent, so you're not adding to what could be an overweight position already. J.P. Morgan Technology Leaders and First Trust Nasdaq 100 Tech Sector. Mark Avalone, Potomac Wealth Advisors. We thank you. Good to be here. You got it. Uh, We've got a news alert on Apple, and Steve Kovac has the details. Steve. Hey there, Tyler. Yeah, this is a big one. The EU is forcing Apple to open up that famous wall garden. Today, Apple announcing how it will comply with the EU's strict tech regulations under the Digital Markets Act, commonly known as the DMA. It means big changes are coming for iPhone users in Europe, and it could have a negative effect on Apple's growth through its lucrative services business. Some big changes coming here. Third-party app stores 
other companies can now put their own app stores on the iPhone and they won't be subject to many restrictions already existing in Apple Store. That means things like pornography, for example, will finally be allowed on the iPhone as a separate app. Changes to fees Apple charges are also coming. Commissions are actually going down. Apple's cut in its own app store will shrink to 17% from that standard 30% cut. Smaller developers, though, will only have to pay a 10% cut down from 15%. Apps can also use their own payment systems for digital purchases, and Apple won't take a cut out of that either. That means, for example, you can buy an audiobook directly from the Spotify app just by plugging your credit card in, something you haven't been able to do before in these apps. Now, these changes are only for EU users, but other markets, including regulators and lawmakers in you in the U.S. are considering similar restrictions on Apple services. And look, Apple's not happy about this, not just because it's going to eat into their services margins, but they also say these changes can make iOS less secure and can even impact things like battery life on your device as you're installing these services from alternative app stores, Tyler. Do they have a root of appeal or is this just sort of this you is take it? it you, this is it. This is it, man. This, this, this is, is it's happening. This is the new world. So yes. get used to it, Apple. And, and the, the real question here, Tyler, is as we've seen, uh, we, you and I were talking about this earlier this week. The real question is, you know, how does app, is Apple's compliance with these laws? So right now it's going to we're going to have to see in March when it goes into full effect, whether EU regulators agree that Apple is complying with the law in the way that the EU side thinks they should. Apple, of course, thinks this is in compliance with the law, but it's not going to be until this uh, actually launches in early mm. March. Uh, that we get to see it uh, in, in action and also how many people take advantage of these new features. If everyone just starts using their iPhones like they were using before, really no change for Apple. But if people start taking advantage of these alternative app stores and so forth, um, it could really put a dent uh, in their services business, at least in Europe, potentially elsewhere, if these reg- similar regulations go into effect around the world. A brave new world for Apple. Thank you, Steve. Sure Steve back. Coming up, Alaska Air moving higher after an earnings beat, but everyone from Wall Street to Washington focused on two things. That's the fallout from the Boeing MAX 9 grounding and whether the DOJ will stand in the way of its deal with Hawaiian Airlines. Uh, We'll ask about both when CEO Ben Minicucci joins us for an earnings exclusive next. Plus, Papa John's unveiling its plan to boost the company's bottom line. Shares are down 45% from their record high just over two years ago. The CEO will join us on the progress Papa Jay is making and what's next for the pizza maker. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Alaska Airlines moving higher after the company posted a fourth quarter earnings beat, but the results aren't really the headline here. Less than two hours ago, CEO Ben Minicucci kicked off that earnings call by apologizing to the passengers on a flight where an emergency door panel or a door plug blew off at 737 MAX 9, reiterating that safety is the company's top priority and the reason they grounded their 65 MAX 9 aircraft proactively, affecting a third, a third of their January capacity. So what's next for Alaska? Its CEO, Ben Minicucci, joins us now along with Phil LeBeau. Phil, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tyler. Uh, ben, thanks for joining us today. Let's start off with the MAX 9. We'll talk about the uh, the business in terms of what you want to get back to, uh, but we'll talk about that in a bit. I want to talk first about the, the MAX 9. You have the first ones potentially going back into service tomorrow. How long will it take you to get all of those 65 back in service? Oh, hi, Phil. Good to see you again, and good morning, Tyler. Uh, so, Phil, we're starting the inspections today. Uh, like you said, the first one Friday. We expect within about a week our entire 65 airplanes or close to that should be up um, back in full service, and we should be back to full schedule sometime later next week. You've said that you're angry, understandably angry, about what happened three weeks ago uh, and the fact that the follow-up inspections, you guys found loose bolts in many aircraft. Um, the question that I think a lot of people have is, have you expressed that anger directly to Dave Calhoun and Stan Deal at Boeing? Have you said to him, look, guys, this is beyond unacceptable what has happened? Absolutely, Phil. Within a couple of days of the event, um, they were in our offices here uh, in Seattle. And, you know, I made it perfectly clear Flight 1282 should never, ever have happened. Alaska Airlines received an aircraft off the production line with a faulty door plug, and we're going to hold Boeing accountable for that. Uh, we're going to hold them to a higher standard uh, for airplanes coming off the delivery line, uh, and that standard is going to be higher quality. And we've already started with our own folks on the uh, production line, providing a second set of eyes in terms of oversight. You've heard the announcements with the FAA in terms of their additional oversight. Boeing explained to us a lot of the quality improvement plans they're going to put in place. So I'm confident with all these steps that are going to be put in place that we'll get a better quality airplane off the production line. But we're going to put uh, a higher bar for Boeing, and we're going to hold their feet to the fire in terms of aircraft delivery and quality. Ben, thank you for joining us. Tyler here. Um, how does this affect your desire to do business with Boeing, to buy planes from Boeing, or will you look at other suppliers more closely than maybe you did uh, in the past? Well, Tyler, we have a long relationship and a deep one with Boeing that goes back a couple of decades, two, three decades. Uh, and so that partnership is strong. And I think it's virtue of that partnership where I can have tough conversations with the leadership team and say, look, you guys are better than this. Uh, and we have 231 Boeing 737s. We are an all-Boeing fleet. And we have 185 deliveries coming to us in the next seven to eight years. So we made that commitment to Boeing. And I'm asking Boeing now to make a commitment that their quality is going to improve dramatically with their forward deliveries. So I hear you saying we still trust them. Correct me if I'm, if I'm putting words in your mouth, number one. Number two, of the 65 planes that you have, the MAX 9s in your fleet, how many of them have that door plug? 
Uh, so uh, all the Max 9s, the, the, the 9 model, all have the door plug. So I 65 see. of them, and they have a door plug on the left and right-hand side. So there's two door plugs uh, per airplane. Uh, the Dash 8 Max, which we, we received our first one uh, that's in service, does not have any door plugs. Ben, it's Phil again. Look, uh, Boeing's in your backyard. You've got a long, close relationship with them. Uh, you yourself have worked uh, in hangars with aircraft. Uh, so you understand what's mm -hmm. required here. I, I don't expect you to answer for Boeing, but I think the main question a lot of people have is, how, how did they drop the ball this badly? What, what is the reason? Is it because of the pandemic and a lot of institutional knowledge went out the door, retired, is not coming back, and they've got some newer workers there? Uh, is it just sloppiness? Um, what, what do you think this is the, you know, the cause for them dropping the ball this way? Well, Phil, I think uh, there are a lot of reasons that have to come out uh, for what happened through an investigation. And I think that's what everyone is doing, is investigating what happened, why it happened, and what broke down in terms of production processes, quality control processes and quality assurance processes. It's one of the reasons we're putting our own oversight people there. We want to watch it with our own eyes, what's going on through every phase of the assembly process, putting a second set of eyes. And if we see something that we don't like, we're going to raise the flag. And again, I think in addition with the FAA oversight, hopefully some of those things that you discussed on why these things happened will bubble to the surface and we can fix them before any aircraft gets delivered in the future. But there's a lot of work to be done here. And just to be clear, Tyler, to your point is, look, my goal is um, to hold a high bar on Boeing. But uh, I want to see them be successful. Uh, we're two CL-based companies. Uh, again, we're an all-Boeing fleet. I have a huge order uh, book with them. Uh, the ultimate goal is to make Boeing better uh, uh, through this process and, uh, and, keep, uh, and, and, and keep our customers and our employees uh, having a lot of confidence in this airplane going forward. Ben, let me ask you about uh, with one last question regarding the MAX here. Um, there were about 3,000 flights, this is what you guys just said on your conference call, that you expect to have mm -hmm. canceled because of the grounding of these MAX 9 planes. Um, now, about half of those passengers were rebooked on other Alaska flights. Um, but I've heard from a few people who have said, look, I was on a flight, maybe I had to do a layover. Um, if things changed in my schedule. Um, they understand the situation, but their travel plans were slightly altered or altered dramatically. Will they get compensation mm -hmm. in some fashion from either you or from Boeing or from somebody for having to change their trips? Well, look, Phil, uh, always with Alaska, we always want to take care of our guests. And, um, you know, the disruptions, the cancels have been awful. And, yes, we've had to reroute some passengers with a more, you know, uh, with a layover somewhere. And, uh, and we'll take care of those passengers appropriately within, uh, within Alaska. You know, the, uh, you know, the, the thing uh, that we have to think about is going forward. And our schedule is coming back to full service. And, Phil, what I'll tell you is a lot of those customers um, and the community has reached out to me personally saying that how much they believe in Alaska, how much they trust Alaska going forward. So uh, my goal is to get the airline back to full schedule and give them the Alaska Airlines they know and love so well, which is a safe and reliable airline. Let me quickly switch gears to the deal with Hawaiian Airlines, uh, your acquisition of Hawaiian. 
DOJ shut down the JetBlue spirit. And I heard you on the call saying, look, it's a different deal completely. But do you think mm -hmm. the DOJ will bring a suit trying to block your acquisition of Hawaiian? You know, I, I'm not sure, Phil. I think we met with them initially uh, last week, uh, presented them uh, the case. I think they're reviewing it. They're going to ask for more information. And look, we'll follow the process. I think our deal, like I said on the call this morning, has very strong merits, very different from the JetBlue deal. We're not eliminating a low-cost competitor. It's very pro-competitive. It's very pro-consumer. You know, uh, I'm, I'm excited for our guests, both on the West Coast and in Hawaii, to have more expanded choice on where to fly. And, uh, and like I said, it makes us a slightly larger airline to compete more vigorously against the big four uh, who dominate 80% of the skies, uh, the domestic skies, uh, and with Alaska now having an international network and, and, and wide-body airplanes. So I'm excited about it. I hope our case uh, uh, you know, will, will, uh, will be evident with, uh, with the merits that it has, and, uh, but we'll follow the DOJ process and, uh, and go through it uh, as required. Ben, one last question about the business itself, what you'd like to get back to doing. Mm -hmm. What's your outlook when you look at the first half of 2024? You know, we're feeling pretty good, Phil. I mean, if you take the 9 max impact aside, and we talked about the $150 million impact uh, to the business, which, by the way, uh, our expectations, Boeing will make us whole uh, with that. Uh, we're, we're projecting profitability for 2024, strong profitability for 2024. You know, our APS target will be between three and five dollars. So I feel really good. And this really comes on the on the on tailwinds of 2023. We finished 2023 with a seven and a half percent pre-tax margin on the higher end of the industry competing with United and Delta. And I'll say without the international tailwinds and higher West Coast fuel. So we feel very good about our 2023 performance. It bodes well for us for 2024. Uh, and when we put this behind us in Q1, I'm very, very optimistic about uh, our strategic plan, especially with the Hawaiian and our performance in 2024. Ben, thanks for joining us today. I know it's been uh, a crazy several weeks here, and I know you've still got a lot of work to do with the Mac, but we appreciate you joining us. Ben Minicucci, CEO of Alaska Airlines. Tyler, I will send it back to you. Phil, thank you very much, and our thanks to Mr. Minicucci. Uh, coming up, a trio of payment stocks on deck with results, and investors will be looking for any clues about the strength of the consumer. Our trader will tell us which numbers he's watching and give us his read on two other names out with earnings after the bell. The exchange returns after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Courtney Reagan with your CNBC News update. Just moments ago, former Trump advisor Peter Navarro was sentenced to four months behind bars. A jury convicted Navarro on contempt of Congress charges last September for refusing to comply with a federal subpoena related to the investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Navarro is appealing the conviction. A Hamas spokesman says that if the International Court of Justice issues a call for a ceasefire tomorrow, that it will abide by the decision as long as Israel does the same. The World Court is set to rule Friday on a genocide claim brought by South Africa against Israel.
And Japan's moon lander nailed its landing spot earlier today, but there was a problem. The country's space agency released photos of the lander upside down and unable to power up. Japan becomes the fifth country to land on the moon. The space agency says there is a chance for the lander to generate power through its solar panels and recover. Tyler, back over to you. Landed on its head. Thank you, Courtney. Appreciate it. With takeover rumors swirling, we've got a news alert on Paramount Global, and Julia Borston has the story. Julia. Tyler, Paramount Global CEO Bob Backish just circulating a memo about his strategy for the year. In this memo, which we've obtained, he acknowledged M&A speculation, saying that amid all the industry changes and the company's transition from linear to streaming, it's no surprise that Paramount remains a topic of speculation. He said he's just focused on driving earnings growth, saying that job cuts will be part of that, saying, quote, we continue to reduce, we will continue to reduce our workforce globally. Now, that is part of Backish's plan to unlock synergies and collaboration across the company. He also writes about driving streaming profitability, reiterating that 2022 was Paramount's peak investment year in streaming and that they plan to drive revenue across advertising and licensing as well as subscriptions. Tyler? Julia, I, I guess I'm struck here you often, often when a company becomes a subject of M&A speculation, the CEOs are quick to knock it down. It sounds like Mr. Backish is doing anything but that here. Well, what I would say is he acknowledges the speculation. He says, I'm not going to comment on that. I'm just going to say that we're doing our best to make Paramount Global as profitable as possible. And in effect, he, he's outlining the roadmap that he sees to make Paramount a more glo uh, global a more valuable company to any potential buyers. Um, but he doesn't weigh in on the speculation and, and tries to leave that to the side. But he couldn't ignore that all that buzz is out there. All right, Julia. Thanks very much, Julia Borston. Let's take a look at shares of Papa John's. Why not? Down 10% in the past uh, 12 months after share prices more than doubled during the height of the pandemic. Papa John's looked to recapture that momentum with its Back to Better initiative last year, emphasizing uh, execution and customer experience, not to mention uh, the uh, shakaroni pizza. Love that. Uh, and just a few weeks ago, the pizza chain introduced uh, Back to Better 2.0, this time focused on shifting marketing dollars to grow margins. Shares are up 11% since that announcement. And joining us now in a CNBC exclusive is Rob Lynch, Papa John's president and CEO with our expert on all things restaurant, Kate Rogers. Kate. Tyler, thanks so much. And Rob, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kate. I'd love to kind of start this off big picture here. As we're getting into earnings season, we're seeing a bit of tug of war right now, of course, with inflation and deflation. On the whole, how are you feeling about costs as we kick off the new year? You know, we feel great as we look towards 2024. We've seen a stabilization of our business relative to the last three and a half years where we've gone through, obviously, a global pandemic, um, some, some conflict across the world, and then hyperinflation. So we feel like we are in a great position right now to take advantage of a stabilized environment. The co consumer has shown to be very resilient. Uh, you know, we just announced our fourth year uh, sports straight year of same-store sales growth. So we're, we're really well-positioned. I think our industry is well-positioned. Our value equation has never been better relative to the other segments of the industry. Pizza has um, continued to hold on pricing, where a lot of other segments have taken a lot of pricing over the last couple years. So um, mm -hmm. we're really well set up for, for 2024 and beyond. 
And then to build on those comments on costs, you just, of course, made this significant announcement as part of that Back to Better 2.0 plan, shifting franchisee spend to focus more on national versus local advertising. Explain to viewers why you made this shift and ultimately what it means for your owners. You know, we're a scaled concept. We've got uh, distribution, we've got restaurants in every market in the United States, and national media tends to be more efficient, more productive. We're one of the last holdouts on a, on a more localized model, so we made that transition. We made it with the support of our franchisee base, who overwhelmingly voted to move to this model. Uh, we also just completed a couple new agency reviews that we think is going to optimize our national media, both from a creative and a media standpoint. So uh, we really think that we're going to drive a lot more productivity from our national marketing platform. Rob, uh, Tyler here, if I could ask a couple of questions. First is, is your sales growth, which is up uh, 2 or 3%, depending on what the measures are, uh, which measure you point to, is that sales growth because you've added more stores, because you've raised prices, or if you looked at a unit sales or a same-store sales basis, would your, would your sales also still be up? Yeah, I'd say it, it, it's all three. As I mentioned earlier, we have held on pricing relative to a lot of other players in our industry. Mm -hmm. So the disproportionate amount of our growth has come from improved mix. We're trading customers up to more premium pizzas. We're getting them to add things like papadillas and papa bites onto their typical traditional pizza-only mm -hmm. orders. So that's driving some, sale, some, some dollar sales growth. But we've also built more restaurants. The last few years, we've had uh, success opening new restaurants across the U.S. and internationally. And then lastly, you know, we have been able to grow same-store sales comps uh, consistently. The only one to do it the last four years have positive sales-store sale comps. I'm obsessed with Shaquille O'Neal. I think he's a really good <laughs> businessman. I know he owns uh, some, some Papa John's franchises in your system, and, and he either is or was on your board. My question is, what's it like to go to a board meeting with Shaquille O'Neal? How much fun is it? So Shaquille is an amazing businessman. He's obviously been able to garner a lot of success post his athletic career, um, but he's an amazing human as well. He really is just an awesome person to work with on a regular basis, both at the operating level, he is a partner with us on some franchises. At the board level, he continues to be a productive, great member of our board. He comes with a different perspective, given his background, given uh, the other businesses that he's in. So it really is insightful to, to engage with him. And, um, you know, he, he really brings a human element to the boardroom. He speaks what he thinks, and, and he brings a lot of feeling to, and passion to, to what, we're, what we're talking about. He is an immensely human guy. I, I agree with that. Kate? Rob, I'd love to turn the conversation to technology, of course, more and more relevant in the space. In terms of optimizing restaurant operations, tell us about how you're using data science and the investment noted in that Back to Better announcement, what that will mean for your operations and streamlining them, making them more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in keeping with the discussion we talked about national marketing being more productive, marketing and media productivity is about to take a big leap. I mean, AI, which everyone has been talking about, is, is really going to make us more efficient at understanding our customers and being able to reach them in a very um, proact uh, productive and efficient way. And so we have built, uh, we, you know, we're an e-commerce company. 
85% of our orders come across our digital channels. We have huge amounts of first-party pur purchase data, which allows us to optimize how we go to market with our customers, how we can make sure that we're delivering the most value. The analytics that are going to power that um, are really, we're really just scratching the surface on those capabilities. So as we I'm continue- I'm sorry, Rob, to, excuse me, Rob. I'm going to have to interrupt for just a sec. We have uh, the Boeing CEO, Dave Calhoun, on Capitol Hill breaking news. Do you agree with the FAA's decision to bar expansion of the MAX airplanes? Is it too soon for the MAX to fly this weekend? I have to. Well, Mr. Calhoun, uh, obviously meeting with senators, but not uh, really meeting with reporters there as they follow him uh, to uh, what appears to be an elevator bank in one of the Senate office buildings uh, on Capitol Hill. If there is any news made, well, there go the doors. There's not going to be news made now. Uh, let's go back to uh, Kate and Robert Lynch. Go ahead, Kate. Uh, thanks so much, Tyler. And Rob, thanks for sticking with, with us here. I want to just talk more more broadly about your outlook. You sound very optimistic about the year. Interesting to hear. I know you said you consider yourself to be an e-commerce company. It's, it's fascinating to hear food executives kind of talk about the restaurant sector. Uh, in that vein of thought, but what's your biggest headwind right now for the sector for 2024 as you look out ahead? You know, I, I would say our biggest headwind as a company is probably the global instability that we're seeing right now. Obviously, we've got a lot of markets across Europe, the Middle East, even Asia that still are figuring out, you know, what the future holds. And, you know, we, we are a global company. We operate in over 50 countries internationally, and we are going to continue to work with our franchisees in every market to make sure that they're set up for long-term, sustainable, profitable success. And so um, that's what we're focused on. I'm on calls with a lot of our franchisees in a lot of our markets. We also own restaurants in the UK right now that we're working to optimize and make sure that we are helping our partners there um, shore up their businesses for, for financial success moving forward, too. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting time for our international businesses, but we've been around for almost 40 years now. This will be our 40th year of Papa John's. And, um, you know, we got 50 countries that we are doing business in, and, and um, it gives us a bit of diversification, even if there is some instability. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to hear your outlook on the year, and uh, we're going to leave it there for now. Rob Lynch, the CEO of Papa John's, we appreciate it. And Tyler, Kate, I'll send it back. Kate, to you. thank you very much, Mr. Thank Lynch. You, Come back and bring Shaq next time. Robert Lynch, <laughs> we appreciate you. it. All right, thanks. All righty, coming up, uh, last quarter was one of the strongest ever for muni bond funds, where investors can find tax-free opportunities this year. That's next. The exchange will be right back. Tax-exempt bond funds posting their second-largest quarterly return on record in the fourth quarter of last year, trailing only the third quarter of 2009. So will the positive momentum push into this year, and how should investors position for that? Let's ask Jamie Islin, head of municipal fixed income at Newberger Berman, along with our own Rick Santelli. Rick, floor is yours. Yes, thank you, Tyler. Jamie, welcome. It's so great to have you, especially after that lead-in that Tyler had, uh, Q4 of 23, big pop. And we even see it in the ETF MUB as you look at the chart there. And if you extend that chart pre-COVID, another thing jumps out at me, Jamie, as good as that fourth quarter was for taxable and tax-exempt, 
It certainly isn't as juicy as it was pre-COVID. What are you thinking about the muni space at this point? Rick, it's, a, it's great to be back on the show, and I'm still very constructive on the muni space. Yes, as you point out, we had a big rally, but investors have to think about where we've come. Two years ago, muni AAA yields were 200 basis points lower than they are today, so there's still a lot of yield in the market right now. And it's interesting, in 2023, there was so much uncertainty out there. At Newberger, we told investors, Put some money in Treasury bills, earn 5.5%, and just be safe while we play through this volatility. Now there's so much more certainty around the Fed. The big theme now is get out of cash, get out of T-bills, and start securing those higher yields for a lot longer. And Jamie, what areas specifically? See, unlike Treasuries, munis are a little harder to keep track of. There isn't a centralized space. We used to have a muni futures contract, but that was long gone decades ago. So what area are you specifically focusing in on? You're right, Rick. It's a very fragmented market that requires active management. I've talked in the past on the show, I really like the transportation sector. Americans are hitting the road, they're flying like crazy, and if you just look at some of the airport credits, you can buy really solid A-rated names, a couple in your own backyard, like uh, O'Hare Airport or Midway Airport. If you can pick up an extra 30 to 50 basis points to own those A-rated credits that are doing really well right now, that's one good play. I also really like toll roads right now. Uh, again, people are driving, uh, the revenues are strong. There was a deal just last week in uh, North Carolina called Triangle Expressway. In 30 years, uh, these bonds were yielding 100% of treasuries. You're getting the tax exemption for free there. We think that's a really, really good deal. Now, Jamie, we're almost out of time. Really quick to this last question. Not all states are created equal. I know that you brought up O'Hare, but we have some issues in, in Chicago and issues in Illinois. There's also issues in California, New York. Are there any states that you would shy away from with the transportation strategy in mind? Your final thought. It, this, this is a market where you got to look under the hood. The Fed is not there to lift all boats anymore. And as you point out, Rick, California, they had a $100 billion surplus a couple years ago. Now they're talking about, um, you know, a 30 to $60 billion deficit. So you got to know your credits. You got to ask yourself, are you being paid for those? And I think that's really what's going to drive performance going forward. So credit differentiation, big theme for 2024. Excellent, Jamie. Excellent. You made it sound so simple. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to you coming back very soon. Tyler, back to you. And as we uh, return, the big names on deck to report results. Uh, we've got the trade on financials, semis, and denim next. The exchange will be back in a moment. Earnings uh, season continues to roll along, and we've got chips, charges, and chinos on the docket this hour. Here with our trades, Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors President and CIO. Hi, Lee. Uh, let's start off uh, with uh, Intel uh, nearly erasing its 2022 losses, 67% gain in the last year. Bernstein watching that turnaround for updates on cost-cutting and its nascent AI efforts, but a little bearish on slowing PC demand. Carter Worth today warning of a potential chip dip ahead. What say you, Lee? I don't care about where they get half the revenue, which are PCs. I don't care about putting little AI chips on, you know, PCs. What I care about is one thing is data centers. I think by now we all understand when we say data centers, we mean AI. 
And so if we see continued sequential de declines from 4.4 to 4.1, you know, you're seeing declines in that data center. If that continues, Intel is dead on arrival. The only thing I think will really give you some hope that I kind of think is interesting longer term is look at their foundry business. That thing's doubling. And I think if they can really execute foundry well, then there might be some hope for Intel. But outside of that, I think they're going to be third string to AMD and NVIDIA. Very interesting. All right, a group of financials next. They are set to report Visa, Capital One, American Express, all three up double digits uh, in the past three months with uh, Capital One, the outperformer. Baird cautious, however, concerned about valuation, slowing volumes, risks to consumer credit. How about this group? I prefer to look at this group as a barometer rather than investing in it. You know, I've always had sort of a, a, a love story with American Express because I never have to worry so much about their consumers. But here's how I would like to play it. Instead of buying them, how about it you watch them and you want to see the flows. You want to hear Capital One always complain about how they're having more delinquencies. We're not necessarily hearing that now. But when you start hearing American Express say their well-heeled clients are having a problem, that's when I think that you have to worry about the overall economy. Overall, I'm still bullish on this. I think consumers are going to increase their loans. I think they're going to be able to pay it off. And remember, we're looking down the barrel next year of rate cuts and better roads ahead. I wouldn't do much with them. All right. Interesting. Finally, we've got Levi Strauss reporting after the bell. UBS calling it one of the strongest U.S. soft lines brands, second only to Nike. But recent data show increased promotions and softer sales in an uncertain macro environment. How about Levi's? I disagree. I think Levi's has some problems. They went from 20 plus percent direct to consumer and now they're down to 10 percent. They want to be a global denim lifestyle brand. Then what was going on with Beyond Yoga and almost a hundred million dollar charge off of that disaster? I think that they're in the same category as VF Corp with Vans, you know, the shoes that I'm wearing right now. It appeals to a lot of guys my age and a lot of sad dads. I think if it doesn't, it doesn't have the riz. Yeah. When my daughter buys those big baggy jeans with holes in it, Levi's is not on her list. I wish them the best of luck. I'll always buy them. I think you find something else. I'd rather buy Decker that has Uggs. Gotta leave it there. Lee Munson, Portfolio Wealth Advisors. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.